Good morning. Um, it's great to be here. I have to tell you, um, I told Mary last night that I have never, ever struggled with preparing a teaching as much as I did this. And I know why. Um, I had, it, this chapter has my favorite verse in it, and it's kind of like, I went into this thinking, I got this, I know this stuff, I know this, I can do this. And God showed me very clearly that I knew nothing. So I was still up this morning, I got up this morning after staying up late at five, and I've been working on this for weeks, I want to tell you. This is not like I didn't start it last night, but I was up at five finishing writing it, consequently. There are no cute slides, no slides to help you keep the outline or anything. So I apologize to you visual people. You just have to practice your listening skills today. So I am sitting before you not as a teacher, just as a broken vessel or maybe a cracked pot. I'm not sure. But someone that God has chosen to um, speak to and speak through. So would you just pray with me? Um, God, thank you. Thank you for um, your word. Thank you that it's deep enough and rich enough that we have to dig into it. And that, oh God, forgive me for taking for granted that I knew, that I understood. Um, Thank you for the depth of it. And I just pray that you would um, speak through your Holy Spirit now and give us ears to hear the message that you have for each of us individually. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, chapter 6 is a, um, an intensely informative passage. So we're going to look at it in, in the form of questions that I think that the author wanted answers by the readers, uh, by his readers. So the first question is, what does he want them to do? And the second question is, what does he want them to do? And the third question is, what does he want them to do? So that simplifies your outline right there. Okay, the first, what does he want them to do, is in the first three verses. What does he want them to do in regards to their spiritual growth? Just as parents love their children too much to allow them to remain babies, this author is not going to give in to their immaturity either. Crawling is good for babies. Walking is better for toddlers and the ensuing ages. Walking is harder. When Mary and Shauna and I were talking about this yesterday, we said that walking is harder, crawling is still a viable means of transportation, but that it is not attractive or practical for a mature person. And God, this very morning, I love his sense of humor. My left knee totally went out. I could not put any weight on it. I was downstairs. I had to go upstairs because that's where the shower was and my clothes. I had to go up the stairs. I had my cup of coffee, which I wanted. But I literally put my coffee on one step ahead of me and crawled to it. Moved it to the next step and crawled to it. I'm telling you, it's not an attractive way for an adult person to travel. So these people needed to grow up and mature past where they were. So in, these, in this first, very first phrase, open your Bibles to chapter 6 if you haven't. Um, in the very first phrase, um, the author uses two verbs, leave and go. And these words are paired a number of times in Scripture. In Genesis, God tells Abraham to leave your home 
and go to the place I will show you. So the writer isn't telling them to just simply abandon what they know, their past traditions, but to press forward to better things. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at, I don't think you went over these in your groups, we're going to look at those six foundational truths that the, or principles that the Hebrews were being asked to leave so we can understand why the author is asking them to, read, to leave those principles. Um, the Old Covenant had six concepts, all of which pointed to the gospel but were not actually part of the gospel. And lest you think Chris is not here, she is in every line of this. We struggled through a lot of this um, together, researching and rehashing. This is heavy, heady stuff. And we looked, we read a number of different, um, um, what do you call those that we're not supposed to read? Commentaries. Um, <laughs> see, I couldn't even say it. Um, by um, deep, learned, godly men who had differences of opinions about these. But as far as these um, six things, we decided um, together that John MacArthur gave the best description. So that's what this part of the teaching is based on, is, is his work. The first one was repentance from dead works. So the Old Testament pattern was to turn away from evil works and turn to God. That was the whole doctrine they knew. That was the whole doctrine there was. But now that the new covenant was in effect, repentance was meaningless without Jesus Christ, without faith in Jesus Christ. So turning away from evil is an important part of the Old Testament, but this had to be abandoned or at least changed so that the fulfillment could be made effective by coming to Jesus Christ. Secondly is faith toward God, which is closely related to the repentance First Peter, uh, or Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So no matter how sincere their repentance from works and their faith toward God had been under the old covenant, it could not bring them to God without Christ. The third thing was washings. Um, some translations actually call this the doctrine of baptisms. The Greek word used here, though, is baptismos, which means washings. Every Jewish home had a, a basin, a ceremonial basin for um, the ceremonial cleansings, and there were many of those. The readers are told to go beyond this. Even the Old Testament predicted that one day its ceremonial cleansing would be replaced by a spiritual one that God himself would give. The old washings were many, and they were temporary. The new one is once, and it's permanent. It is the being born, the regeneration of water and the spirit that Jesus told Nicodemus was necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. And fourth is a laying on of hands. This has nothing to do with the practices of the New Testament church, the New Testament apostles, when they would lay hands on someone and pray for them if they were being sent out on a, a special mission for Christ or they were um, being called to some special thing, some special service. Under the Old Covenant, when a person brought a sacrifice, they had to lay their hands on that sacrifice accepting their part in it, making identification with it. So the writer was telling 
these immature Jews to forget about laying hands on a temple sacrifice and lay hold of Christ by putting their trust in him. Slurpy. Um, Okay, note to self, don't slurp. (laughs) Okay, the fifth thing is resurrection from the dead. And we learn very little about that in the Old Testament. The concept is spoken of by Job, and I think this is beautiful. Remember, he said in chapter 19, And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, how my heart yearns within me. So um, the concept was there, but the Old Testament teachings were limited and very vague. In the New Testament, of course, resurrection is one of the most prominent and detailed doctrines. And it comes to fullness in the person of Jesus Christ who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the last thing was eternal judgment, which is also related um, to the resurrection. And again, very little is said about it in the Old Testament. The only reference I found was Ecclesiastes 12.14, which says, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So they knew of the concept. In the New Testament, we're told a great deal about eternal judgment. We know what's going to happen to believers. We know what's going to happen to unbelievers. We know that all judgment is given to Jesus Christ. It's very extensive. So what does he want them to do? He wants them to know that the Old Testament is true. It is from God. It was a necessary part of his revelation. But it's only partial. And therefore, it's no longer valid. He wants them to let go of the immature, elementary, shadows and symbols, the typology we've been talking about of the old covenant, and take hold of the real and mature and perfect teachings of the new. And with God's help, he wants to get on with it already. You can just hear him saying that. All right, well, let's look at the second part, which is verses 4 through 8. What does he want them to do with this warning that he's giving them? These next verses are difficult, really difficult. And there are many interpretations, several, you know, pretty prominent ones. Um, I'm going to share with you um, what made the most sense to me um, and Chris as we hashed through this and studied um, different authors. Um, You're going to, this is not going to answer all your questions. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, God's word is so deep and so rich that we're going to be searching it out. Just like I came to this thinking, I've studied this before. I've read this before. I know this. I didn't know anything. I still don't. So don't worry if you have questions. But if you have questions that bother you, do ask. Ask ask me. Ask Chris. Ask some of our leaders. Ask someone that you trust. And search out the scriptures yourself. Search it out yourself. The Holy Spirit will teach you just as easily as he will teach John MacArthur or Warren Wiersbe or whoever. So um, what we're going to look at is the five advantages that these listeners have been given. It says, first of all, that they had been enlightened. The Greek word for that is photizio, which means to give light by knowledge or teaching. 
there is no connotation here of response to that enlightenment. There's no mention here of salvation or justification or regeneration or new birth at all. So the Jews addressed here were informed, they were enlightened, but apparently not saved. Consequently, they were in danger of losing all opportunity to be saved. Secondly, they had tasted of the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift here most likely refers to Christ himself and the salvation that he brought. It appears that this gift had not been accepted they tasted, but they hadn't accepted. It had been, it was tasted, it was sampled, it was nibbled on, but it wasn't feasted on and taken fully in. Thirdly, it says they had partaken of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for that, though, is metochos, which means association. These Jews apparently had never possessed the Holy Spirit. They were simply around when he was around because he was in other believers that they were hanging out with. But the Bible speaks of the, new, of the Holy Spirit being within believers, not just associating with them. Fourthly, they had tasted the word of God. This is another place where it really helps to go back to the original um, language. You know, we are reading uh, translations, um, and our English words can fall far short of what the original meaning was. So this word, word of God here, um, the Greek word rhema is used, R-H-E-M-A, and it refers more to or emphasizes the parts rather than the whole. The word that's usually used for God's word when it speaks of the scripture is logos, and that's not the word that was used here. Jeremiah said in the Old Testament book named after him, he said, thy words were found and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. These people had tasted, but they hadn't eaten. Tasting is good, and it's necessary. I mean, we, we, we're all here because we tasted the word of God. You, you taste it first, and that's good. It's, it's right. And these Jews, um, apparently, they were, they were attracted to the sweetness of the word, but Because they didn't chew on it, they didn't swallow it, they didn't digest it, their spiritual taste buds became unresponsive and they lost their desire for it. Paul said, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. That's in 2 Corinthians 13.5. The author was trying to get these people to see themselves as they really were. And then fifth, they had also tasted of the powers of the age to come. They saw in the presence where they were, in the um, community of believers where they were, a glimpse of the future kingdom of God, the way it would function with miracle powers. They saw miracles. They were exposed to miracles. They witnessed them. And still they turned away from the one who performed those miracles. These Jews had been incredibly blessed by all these things, and still they did not believe. So what did he want them to do in response to this stern warning? His heart's desire for them was to turn to Jesus for salvation. It wasn't too late for that, 
but they had to choose to recognize their need and ask to receive that heavenly gift they had casually tasted. And he knew that the longer they merely associated, the less chance there was for them actually to make that eternally better choice. I said there were different interpretations of these verses. And one of those interpretations is that these were people who had actually been saved and redeemed, but were now going to lose their salvation. I want you to leave this room knowing that that is in no way true. Once a person has become a true child of God, he or she will always and eternally belong to God through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for them and accepted by them. Jesus said to his flock, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they know me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the hand of my Father. I and my Father are one. So when you belong to Christ, you are firmly held in his hand, and his hand is firmly held in Father God's. We can rest in the assurance that his sheep will never perish. Only God knows our hearts and exactly when we are sealed for eternity. But the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee or the evidence that this has taken place and will be forever true. Romans 8.16 says that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. As you continue to search search the word for yourself, going on to deeper truths, remember that a doctrine cannot be built on one or two verses. Hebrews 4, 6, 4 through 6, as well as 2 Peter 2, 21, appear, taken out of context, to indicate that salvation can be lost. But always look at the scriptures as a whole and see what truths are expressed throughout it, not in taken out context. The preponderance of scripture supports the conclusion that we are brought to salvation through grace alone And that same grace assures eternal life. Our God will never turn from a sincere cry of faith. Thank you. No slurping. Thank you. Okay. You should hear me chew sonic eyes. Ooh, that's bad. Okay. Now we get to my favorite part. Thirdly, third thing, rest of the chapter. What did he want them to do with the hope and certainty of God's promises? My favorite word is hope. It's circled in pink in my Bible every time I see it. Um, And the word which creates in me a horrible, real, palpable ache is hopelessness. One of the most wrenching stories I've heard is that years ago, I don't remember exactly when, an S-4 submarine was rammed by a ship off the coast of Massachusetts. It sank immediately, trapping the crew in a prison house of death. All rescue efforts ultimately failed. And near the end of the horrible ordeal, 
a diver who was still doing everything possible to try to find a way for the crew's release, thought he heard a tapping on the inside wall of the sunken sub. So he put his ear up to it, his head and against the vessel, and realized that he was hearing Morse code. He spelled out in his mind the message that was being tapped out over and over from within. And the question was, is there any hope? Is there any hope? The writer of Hebrews left us with a little of that feeling of angst as he cautioned his readers and us, if we have ears to hear, in most serious tone about the fatal danger of falling away from their faith and failing to mature once they'd been in touch with the living God. One of what I would consider to be my two life verses is Jeremiah 29, 11. Most of you probably have that on a coffee cup or a t-shirt or a graduation card. Um, it reads, and this is God speaking. And mind you, this is God speaking to the people when they are um, in bondage. Um, they are not even free people at this stage, nor do they see that. But God says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for harm, plans to give you hope and a future. I've always loved that verse, and I've always clung to it, but really, for a long time, I was a little uncertain about that hope. When I finally saw the connection to Hebrews 6, 18, 20, that's when I got it. It says, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. So there's the hope. Jesus Christ is the hope promised in Jeremiah. Peter says in his first letter, It is because of this sacrificed Messiah, whom God raised from the dead and glorified, that you trust God, that you know you have a future in God. The best way to keep from drifting, as we've been vehemently warned not to do, is to take hold of that anchor, which is Christ. Okay, I need to take a little time out here to explain to us something that would have been very obvious to the audience, the original audience of this letter with their background. It would have been significant to them. The term fled for refuge suggests the Old Testament cities of refuge. They're described in the book of Numbers and in Joshua 20. God appointed cities into which a person could flee if he'd accidentally killed someone. And he would have safety there as long as the high priest, the current high priest, was living. Um, at the death of the high priest, he would return home. He was safe for, for, from vengeance by the slain person's family as long as the high priest was alive. But imagine living with that daily fear. The high priest would die. I mean, I'm sure that the person prayed urgently for his safety and for his health, but he would die, and then the safety net was gone. We, however, have fled to Jesus Christ, and he is our eternal refuge. As our high priest, he will never die, and we have eternal salvation 
No avenger can touch us. All right, let's go back for a minute to verses 10 and 11 because this body is um, described there. It says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. So, God sees your work and he sees your love toward him and he measures your love towards others as love for him. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus affirms this when he said, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. I believe that part of doing good to one another is sharing that hope. And I have never seen that lived out in reality in the way I have in this body of believers. Proverbs 29, 18 says that where there is no vision, the people perish. One version says where there there is no hope, the people perish. There are, even in this precious body, numerous people who are in desperate need of hope. And at any given time, there are those of us who have an abundance of it to share. At some time, we'll be one of the ones needing it. But when we are one of the ones with the abundance of it, we can share it with them. There are um, a number of studies of um, people who lived through horrific um, concentration camp experiences. And those studies almost all show that the primary survival tool was hope. And those who had that hope and were able to share it with others and encourage them came out less scathed than anyone. Prayerfully, none of us will ever be in that situation. But there are those among us this very day whose vision is at least dimmed, if not gone. We need always to be aware of the importance of sharing the hope that lies within us. And this body, you all, do that with excellent. Be encouraged, good and faithful servants. Okay, I want to personalize verse 19, my second life verse. So I wear this anchor that Tommy gave me 20 years ago as a reminder that I have this hope, Jesus Christ, as an anchor for my soul, firm and secure. Jesus Christ is our anchor. He is our hope. Our Lord is so dear and so personal. At critical times, he provides circumstances to show us how strong our beliefs really are. So, Tommy had designed for me and given me a number of very um, beautiful things. My wedding band and um, anniversary rings, some earrings that he designed and had created to match those beautiful diamond pendant, Um, all lovely things and all treasured things for what they signified. Well, several years ago, I was teaching on this verse um, in CBS, and um, on that day, he had taken all the things with stones back to the jeweler, as he regularly did, had the stones checked and polished, and um, I always loved how they came back more sparkly than I remembered. Well, Late that afternoon, before I was supposed to teach on this verse, he called, and 
I, I could hear his voice cracking. I could hear tears in his voice. And he said, I lost your jewelry. And I said, what do you mean you lost my jewelry? I knew he didn't even gamble. So, <laughs> but I could, I could hear anguish in his voice. And he said, no, really, I lost it. I lost the bag. It was all in. I've searched everywhere and I can't find it. It's lost. Well, my hand instinctively went to my throat. And I knew it doesn't matter. I still have my anger. Now, God did not teach me that truth in that moment. He had to have been working that in my heart for who knows how long. But in that moment, he showed me, and I knew it to be true. He is my anchor. So again, I want you to be encouraged. If you feel like nothing's happening in your life, I didn't know God was working that in my heart. And he's working things in your heart right now that you don't see and you don't know. But when the critical time comes, he'll reveal to you what he's been working in your heart. All right, this anchor belongs to um, Chris and Brent. Let me see if I can get down and stand back up again. Uh Uh-huh. So, this is such a great symbol. Um, So, if the anchor is tethered to the boat and it's dropped, no matter how um, stormy the surface is, no matter how high the winds are or the waves are, the anchor sinks down deep where the water's still sinks down, it's solid, and the boat may keep rocking, but it's not going anywhere because it's anchored. If, however, we're not holding to the anchor, the boat can easily be blown away or at least drift away. So we have to hold firmly to the anchor of our souls. The difference is that we are anchored upward, heavenward. And our anchor isn't just to hold us steady, but to move us ahead to better things. And unlike any earthly anchor, our anchor is sure and steadfast. Can't break, can't slip. The anchor of our souls isn't like a rope hanging up here somewhere that waiting for our weak hands to try to grasp it. The anchor of our souls is as solidly bound to us as it is to heaven. What Christ bought for us was not the freedom from having to hold fast, but the enabling power to hold fast. Let me read those last two verses again. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. So this says that Jesus is our forerunner. That's very different from the high priest of the Old Testament. He couldn't be a forerunner for anyone because no one could follow him into the Holy of Holies. Jesus, our great high priest, has indeed gone ahead of us into heaven so that by the atonement he made for us, we can follow him there. Jesus came to Bethlehem as a babe. And in that season of Christmas, we sing the hopes and fears 
of all the years are met in him that night. The ancient poet Virgil could have been living in our current day when he made this observation. He said, Confidence cannot find a place wherein to rest in safety. But Virgil died 15 years before the first Christmas. He didn't know what we know, that a baby in a manger would be named Emmanuel, God with us. We now have a choice. We can continue to live with Virgil's B.C. fear, or we can live with A.D. hope. We can pretend Christmas never happened and try to make it on our own, or we can rest in the ever-present God who says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. We can agree with Virgil and adopt the self-reliant posture, which is our culture, or we can put every problem we face today into the hands of the omnipotent God who became one of us so that we might be one with him. Jesus asked Martha at the grave of her brother Lazarus, Do you believe this, that I am the resurrection and the life? And he asks each one of us that as well. Do you believe this? We have to face ourselves as we really are without him. Anchorless human beings spinning toward disaster as surely as was that submarine. We must see him as what he claims to be, our only hope. My greatest personal fear is not to be able to get my breath, not to be able to breathe. If anyone were going to try to kill me, they shouldn't try to suffocate me. So I truly agonize, though, over people in situations like the men trapped in that submarine or when you hear about men trapped in mine shafts where they will run out of air to breathe if rescue doesn't come, and often it doesn't. For those people, often there is no physical hope. But for those of us who have fled to Jesus and chosen to anchor our security in Jesus Christ, even there, there is hope for eternity with him. So what does God want us to do with this hope and these promises? Use it. Share it. When I was um, in my teens, my grandfather died right shortly after my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary and... um, I was with my grandmother, and she was showing me some of the beautiful things they'd gotten as anniversary presents, and they were still all boxed and up on a high shelf. And she said, I was saving them for a special day, and now there aren't any more special days. And she taught me right then. She gave me her china, and she said, use this every day. Take it on picnics. Use it. Today is your most special day. So I think that what what God would like to see us do is to take this extraordinary, precious, fragile gift—not fragile, but you know, treasured like my mom, like my grandmother's beautiful china was. He wants to take this extraordinary gift of hope and make it everyday hope. Use it every day. You can't use it up. Use it every day and share it. Okay, so let me give you a little update on the jewelry thing. Um, it, it never even occurred to me to pray for its return. I, I, I mean, I didn't even think about it. I didn't think it would be. And I was really okay with that. 
I mean, God had really shown me that sparkly stuff wasn't really what I was depending on. But um, a couple of weeks after, maybe it was a week, um, Tommy called and said, at this time I really could hear tears in his voice, that which was lost has been found. Well, he had dropped that little, it was just a little black bag, you know, in, as it must have fallen out of his pocket into a box that was being shipped to McAllen, Texas. The person who received it in McAllen, Texas, godly man that he was, called Tommy and said, I don't think you meant to send this little black bag. <laughs> and so he sent it back. Um, so, I mean, what an amazing God. He, um, he showed me this marvelous truth that he'd worked in my heart, that that beautiful, sparkly stuff wasn't what I depended on, and then he gave me the sparkly stuff back. I mean, how good is that? I do have to tell you, too, though, uh, another time, I don't know what's up with this ring, but another time, I know it's not that God doesn't want us to be married. I know it's not it. But we took, we took it, we left it at a jeweler, a local jeweler, to be cleaned while we were on a trip. We came back from the trip. The jewelry store had been broken into, everything taken out of the vault, including my ring. Gone, gone. So they made another one. That was nice. <laughs> but point, the point of this is, um, Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which is lost. Not jewelry, but souls. And so, I, I, even though I didn't pray for my jewelry to be returned, I appreciate those who did pray for it. And I want us to be encouraged all the more to pray for God's precious souls who are lost. If any of you have any questions about what we've studied today, please come. Dawn's back there. Um, I'm here. There are many people here that you can talk to or, and just search those scriptures. Search them, search them for yourself. And anything I've said today... I want you to test it. I want you to, to search it. If you have questions, if something doesn't sound right, search it. God, the Holy Spirit will speak to you. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, I thank you so much for your presence with us. I thank you that you give us hope. No matter what is happening in our lives, we have hope because we have you. Thank you that you anchor our lives and sure and steadfast. God, I pray for each woman who's here as they leave today. If they have, um, if they're in need of hope, God, that um, you will give it to them in some tangible way. And if they have an abundance of hope, that they'll, you'll show them who to share that with. We thank you, and I just ask in Jesus' name, amen.